Good morning. The Bible reading is from Titus chapter 1 verses 5 through to 16. So beginning with verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message, as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always lies, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Let's pray as we dig into Titus chapter 1. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it we know you. We know you truly. We know what you have done for us, and we know how to find life through faith in Christ. We pray this morning that your spirit would be at work in us, that we might become more like Jesus, that we might see him more clearly and follow him more closely. And in his name we pray. Amen. For those of you who know me uh, well, you will know that uh, a while ago, uh, I used to keep fish. Uh, I had fish tanks. Uh, Basically, Karen and I, on our 10th wedding anniversary, gave each other a fish tank uh, for uh, an anniversary present. And it was only a couple of years ago that we finally gave up. Uh, We used to keep discus fish. This is a discus fish. Isn't it pretty? Pretty? Yeah? Yeah? And we used to have all the plants and all those kind of things. Fish tanks, if you've ever kept them, uh, can be places of amazing beauty. Places where the fish and the plants, if you get everything right, they just flourish right in front of your eyes. But it's deceptive how much work is actually needed. Sometimes you need intensive intervention, sometimes just careful observation, but a neglected fish tank does not go well for very long. All you need is for a fish to sort of swim in behind a log and turn up its fins and die and then rot, uh, or the plant waste to build up, or just too much fish poo, really. Uh, And the chemistry goes feral. And all of a sudden, you wake up, your tank is green, and all the fish are floating on the top. The fish go belly up. You've got to be very, very on the ball. So what's fish got to do with anything? Well, I'd like to suggest that fish tanks and churches have a lot in common. Uh, A lot of parallels. The Apostle Paul wrote to his protege and friend, Titus, 
Uh, back in the first century, Titus was a Christian leader. He'd been part of Paul's mission to a place called Crete. You know that little island famous for minotaurs and things like that in the middle of uh, the Mediterranean Sea? Uh, Titus and Paul and probably others had been there sharing the good news about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul has left Titus behind to set things straight, to oversee, to intervene, to set up churches where not fish, but God's people flourish, where the beauty and the growth that accompany true faith in Christ can be found. We're going to look at this, and particularly the topic of leadership this morning, uh, under four headings. And for those of you uh, who love alliterations, I've got four ends for you this morning. For some of you who find this really kitsch, just remember, you remember my points because I put the effort into giving you four ends. The need for leaders, the nature of leaders, the necessity of leaders, and next steps. Happy? Okay? The need for leadership. Why do we need leaders? Well, fundamentally, Christianity is essentially a team sport. It is essentially a team sport. Every now and then, I come across people who say, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. I don't belong to a church. To me, and I think when you look at Scripture, that's kind of like saying, I'm a hockey player, but I never pick up a stick and run onto the pitch. I'm a netballer, but I never pull on the lycra and throw the ball with my brothers or my sisters in the team. It doesn't make sense after a while. Sure, you might be laid up for a bit. You may not be able to be part of something for a little while. But for a Christian to say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not part of a church, actually is a contradiction. It's like saying, I'm a child, but I don't have a family. I don't have parents. It just doesn't really work. Christianity is a team sport. It is something that is always worked out in community. And God has made it that way. God has designed us that none of us are self-sufficient. None of us have everything that we need. We actually need each other. I think Barbara Streisand once had a song, People Need People, something like that. Okay, sorry to give you Barbara Streisand in the middle of a sermon. But... Christians need other Christians. Christians need churches. Christians need bodies of believers that work together, so much so that you get these words from another book in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, where the author is encouraging the church, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithfully. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, not giving up meeting together, being together as God's people, as God's community, as God's church, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day, the day of Christ's return approaching. Christianity is essentially about church and churches like any teams, they need leaders. And so Paul writes to Titus. He says, the reason I left you in Crete was to, that you might put in order what was left unfinished. He hadn't finished the job. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Obviously, Paul and Titus and their band had gone around Crete, visiting all the major towns. 
and telling people about Jesus, people had put their faith in Christ and they'd formed churches. And now Titus's job is to put leaders into place. And this is, you see it in the New Testament, this is every time Paul plants a church, he appoints leaders. So Acts chapter 14, this is up in Turkey. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned through Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. What do they do next? Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for each of them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. They share the gospel. People come to faith. They come together and leaders are given to the community. The church is essentially not a democracy. It's not just a whole bunch of people come together and do as they see fit. Paul establishes leadership within the church. Why? Because ultimately it is Christ who leads his church. It is Christ who leads his people by his spirit through his word. Now we're going to come back to that. But God leads his people through his spirit by his word. It's become a bit trendy recently to talk about leaderless groups. I don't know if you've come across these. We talk about flat hierarchies and all this sort of stuff. Can I say, a leaderless group is a myth. Think about the friendship groups you might have had at school. You didn't elect a captain, but everyone knew who the key player was or the key players, yes? Everyone knew that if Jane or Jim said, let's play this game or let's do this, everyone would just go along. A leaderless group is really a fiction. You have either official leaders or unofficial leaders. Uh, And unofficial leaders are often the most forceful, the most winsome, the most intimidating, the one everyone likes. But in the church, we don't have an unofficial leadership. We have a system, we have a process of appointing leaders that is set out for us in Scripture. So what's the nature of that leadership look like? Brings us on to our second point. Titus is given instructions by Paul. This is what you're to do. He says you've got to look for men who are led by Christ and men who can lead others in Christ. They're the two things that you've got to look for. So he's telling us that leadership is not primarily personality. You know, that strong, uh, charismatic individual. It's not primarily about that. It may, the leader may have that, but that's not what Paul points Titus to. He points him to character and conviction. In Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul has introduced this idea of the gospel truth, the biblical truth, the knowledge of which leads to godliness, leads to a life that is transformed by that truth. And so you have that set out before. And Paul is saying, you want to find men that are transformed by the truth of God's word. You want to find men who are transformed by the spirit as the gospel is worked out in their life. And so if you look at it there, look at your Bibles if you've got it open. Verse 6, this person's personal life, their marriage, their family must be transformed. 
An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. He's got to be a man that's not mastered by enslaving sins. Verse 7, an overseer manages God's household. He must be blameless, not overbearing. That's arrogant, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. This man is not mastered by these sins. He tells us more. He says, not only have they got to be not mastered by sin, they've got to be growing in a positive direction. Verse 8, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. The gospel, through the power of the Spirit, is working itself out in the life of these people. And this is what you look for. And not only someone who is being transformed by the gospel, but they have the gospel at their heart. Verse 9, they must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. Paul here is saying you've got to look for someone who has been transformed by the gospel of grace. Now, as my farewell was announced, uh, none of you should be in the dark that uh, in a couple of weeks uh, I won't be here. Trinity Hills, you are looking for a new senior pastor. There are some amongst you who have that task to find that person. I hope the rest of you are praying for those people. Uh, but this is what Paul sets before you. Look for someone who maybe isn't the flashiest person, isn't the most charismatic person, but someone where you see evidence of the gospel of grace transforming their life. That is what Paul says. It's about character and conviction. A faith that is both known and understood, but lived out. Lived out in the day-to-day nitty-gritty of life. Life in the church, life in the community, life in the family. Now some questions. Some of you might have some questions, so I thought I should answer them. Some of you, if you've been paying attention, which I hope is all of you, uh, will have noticed that I've been speaking here of men. And Paul speaks here of men. Now, he's talking about uh, congregational oversight exercised through the preaching and teaching of God's word. And the Bible, let me say a few things. The Bible affirms the fundamental equality of men and women. Men and women of equal value and dignity before God. But the Bible also says, against our culture, our culture says men and women, no difference. It's all flexible. The Bible says, no, men are men and women are women. And so the Bible says, fundamentally, equal but different. And we exercise different roles within the life of God's people. It doesn't mean that women can never be in leadership, but the Bible does reserve the position of the teaching elder or the teaching pastor of a congregation for a man. We can talk about it further. I know that's a huge issue. That's a huge issue. Uh, but it doesn't mean, and as you'll see in our life together as Trinity Hills, we obviously don't think that women should just sit down and be quiet. Uh, that's not the case. That's not the case. For many years, I've had more women on my staff than men. Uh, but 
Uh, we have women involved in our leadership teams. We have women as growth group leaders, as youth group leaders, all sorts of things. But here the scripture talks about the fact that as Trinity Hills looks for a new senior pastor, they are looking for a man who has been transformed by the gospel. Some of you may also notice in verse 6, there seems to be a prohibition for a man whose children are not Christian to be in leadership. It says here, let me pick it up, verse 6, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Um, Many of you will understand what we have in our Bibles is a translation of a Greek text because Paul and Titus and all the others and the whole New Testament is written in Greek. Uh, And so what you try and do when you translate, if you've ever translated a language, is try to accurately reflect the meaning that is there. I think at this point, the Bible that we read probably doesn't do it very helpfully. Um, what, uh, What Paul is telling Titus is not you've got to have believing children because you actually don't have control over that. We baptized two kids this morning. Nathan and Anthea, Ben and Amanda, you made promises, but ultimately... Whether your children are in God's kingdom is in his hands. It's a work of grace by his spirit changing their hearts. So how can we be held accountable for something we have no control over? We see here what the the word actually means. It means your children are faithful. It doesn't say your children are believers. It says your children are faithful. And we see this reflected in one of the other letters that Paul wrote to another one of his little uh, offsiders, Timothy. He says, A man must manage his own family well, see that his children obey him. I think this is more what's reflected in this Titus passage, that you actually have order in the household. The order is there, and you must do so with a manner worthy of full respect. You can make sure your children obey them by threatening them to beat them with an inch of their life. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about people who are able to work lovingly and carefully with their families to lead the families. That's the kind of person that you want leading the church. The third question, just really briefly, husband of one wife, what's he talking about? You're not allowed to be polygamous, you're not allowed to have two wives. No, it's probably not the case. Uh, What he is talking about is what I think uh, our translation reflects is that he must be faithful within his marriage. Divorce is another question and I think needs to be considered on a case-by-case basis. But anyway, let's dive back in. Paul's command. When you're looking for leaders, look for men who are transformed by the gospel and men who can lead others in Christ. Demonstrated in their families. They lead their families in Christ and they are to lead the church in Christ. Verse 9. He must hold the hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. The doctrine that is presented in the scriptures, that's what we have. The person who leads the church needs to be grounded in God's word. Why? So he can encourage others in sound doctrine, positive, and refute those who oppose it. Leadership in the church is essentially a matter of God's word. It's a matter of ministry of God's word. Because as I said before, Christ leads his church through his word by his spirit. That is how it works. 
You don't find someone who's got the latest, slickest management techniques. You don't find the charismatic person who uh, can just, you know, speak and enthrall everyone but knows nothing of God's word. You find someone who holds firmly to the trustworthy message as it had been taught to encourage you and when you go wrong and when others go wrong, to refute you. It's important to remember, 1 Peter 5, Peter talks there to leaders and he calls them shepherds. It's a common image. Grace gave it to us in the kids' talk. Uh, The good shepherd, that kind of idea. And the leaders of God's people, God's flock, are shepherds. But in verse 4 of chapter 5, he speaks of Jesus as the chief shepherd. Our leaders, in whatever function that they have, are only ever subordinate to Christ. That's how it should be, and that is why God's word must be central. That's why we spend so much time learning to teach it, teaching it, spending time. Leadership in God's people is leadership through the preaching and teaching of God's word. That's what you need to look for. And it's so important, it's so necessary. Why? Verse 10, for there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception. There are false teachers. And if it is God leading his church, if it is Christ leading his church through his word, if it is led through some other word, it is misled. And Paul says there are lots of candidates for this job. In Acts 20, he's saying goodbye to another church that he planted, one in Ephesus, and he says these words. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Savage wolves. Savage wolves. Those who would take that environment that Christians were designed to grow into, grow into the beauty of God's grace, and they turn it toxic. False teaching kills churches. The modern era is a testimony to that. Church history is a testimony to that. You look at so many churches that have lost their grounding in the gospel of the Lord Jesus, and they are on the decline. They are dying on the vine. False teaching kills churches. What's its nature? Well, in verse 10, Paul talks about meaningless talk and deception. How do we see false teaching? How did Paul see it in Crete? How do we see it now? There's three ways, three ways, I reckon, that Paul brings up in Titus about false teaching. You can add to the gospel, you can distract from the gospel, or you can take from the gospel. So adding to the gospel. Here in Titus, it appears that you've got a whole bunch of people who are telling people that the gospel's great, but you've got to add some other stuff. And so there seems to be rules about purity. Hence the, to the pure, all things are pure. So it's great to have Jesus, but you've got to have some other stuff. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we find that Paul is arguing against people who've come in with the Jewish traditions, the law, and says, Jesus is great, but you've got to be circumcised. You've got to obey all the Old Testament commands. 
And Paul, again and again and again, he argues passionately that if you add to the gospel, if you say Jesus and something else, you lose the gospel. You lose the gospel. What is it for us? For them, it was purity stuff. I've come across Christians who will say, Jesus is great, but you've got to have this particular spiritual experience. Or you've got to be baptized in a particular way by us. Or you've got to have a particular view on issues that are debated amongst the church about spiritual gifts or about creation or all sorts of different things. And they make these important but secondary issues primary. And so it's the gospel plus a particular view on creation. The gospel plus a particular view on baptism. The gospel plus a particular view about the return of Jesus. Paul would argue passionately, if you add to the gospel, you lose the gospel. That's one way. What else? You can add to the gospel. You can distract from the gospel. Verse 14, Paul talks here about Jewish myths. And it appears that there's some stories that were in the Jewish world that were coming into the church and people were taking their eyes off Jesus, taking their eyes off the Bible, off biblical doctrine to chase after these myths. Where do we see them? Where do we see these things that distract us? Well, unfortunately, walk through any Christian bookstore and look at the bestsellers rack. I had a bit of a scan. You can have 90 minutes in heaven, you can have 23 minutes in hell, you can have all sorts of different experiences, things that purport to tell us more. And I find that Christians get wrapped up into this stuff and they don't necessarily want to talk to me about Jesus and they don't want to talk to me about his death and resurrection on the cross, but they want to talk to me about what they read in some book that may or might not have any basis in reality. Things that distract I find that there are Christians, like we've talked about, those core issues, and they get hung up on non-core issues. I can remember having lunch with a man once. He didn't want to talk to me about Jesus. He wanted to talk to me about creation, and that's all he wanted to talk to me about. And if he was talking to someone who didn't know about Jesus, he'd talk to them about creation. We can distract ourselves from the main game. We can also take away. Generally, they do this by denying the authority of Scripture. So they like certain bits of it. God is love, but I don't like judgment. It's all about social justice. It's not about heaven and hell. We can distort the gospel. And what it does, Paul says in verse 11, he says these words, He says they must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households. Now, the word here, disrupting, sounds like a bunch of noisy kids running through your lounge room when you're trying to watch a game, yes? No. It's overturning. It's capsizing. It's smashing to pieces. It's not making it a little bit uncomfortable. It's destroying households, causing them to fall, ruining them. Why is false teaching so important? Because it takes the word of life and hides it. It 
obscures the gate, the narrow gate that we learned about in Matthew chapter 7. It makes the things of God, the things of heaven, it makes them merely human commands. Titus faced that, it wasn't anything new. This is from Isaiah from 600 years BC. The Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. They've left the word of God behind and they've adopted all these traditions and all these practices. And it's leading them, it is leading them astray. Paul's verdict, verse 16. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Hard words. But we are talking about the cure for cancer and you substitute a placebo. The word of life, God's word to us, and you slip in merely human rules. Grace substituted with law. So what do we do with this? What do you do with this? What are those next steps? Let me give you a few things as we move to our close. You, Trinity Hills, need to calibrate your expectations. You need to perhaps recalibrate. I've already spoken. When the new pastor comes, what are you looking for? What are you hoping for? My prayer is that you are hoping for someone who will fearlessly proclaim the whole counsel of God, who will speak to you of the things that you don't want to hear as much as the things that you do want to hear, who will speak to you of God's word, that will speak to you of a word that they have known and experienced themselves, that it's not just in their heads, but it's in their hearts and in their hands. What are you looking for? When you think about leaders for growth groups, leaders for youth groups, what are we looking for? Are we looking for the, the loud person, the cool person? Or are you looking for the godly person, the faithful person, the person who will ground our children and young people in the scriptures? One of the things I have the highest admiration for of Kez is her unfailing commitment to ground our children and youth in the word of God. No leader is perfect, but Kez has shown herself faithful again and again and again and pray that a new senior pastor is raised up who will do exactly that. Who do you nominate to the POT? Do you find the person who kind of knows their way around the boardroom, who's got business acumen, who's maybe your friend or maybe got an axe to grind? No. You find someone who is godly in their life and their doctrine. As you think about pastors, theological education is important, but leadership is so much more than just knowledge. It is more than degrees. Paul tells Timothy to watch his life and doctrine. Degrees, they help with doctrine. You need someone 
whose life is being transformed by the Spirit. That doctrine is working itself out in their lives. I was chatting to Greg Marshall last night and uh, we were just chewing the fat while the ladies were watching movies. Uh, And uh, I was just reflecting on one of the things that I've mentioned it before. It's very easy to assume that your pastor's actually got it all together. It's very easy to just assume that someone else is asking the questions like, hey Cameron, how's your marriage going? Hey Cameron, what are you learning in God's word? Cameron, how are you wrestling with sin in your life? Are you growing? What have you learnt? How you're seeing the gospel transform you in an ongoing way? It's very easy to put your pastors up on a pedestal. Bring them down. They are your brother and sister in Christ. And like I said at the beginning, you need a church, they need a church, and you are the church for them. They need you to encourage and admonish, to pick them up, to spur them on, to pray for them. What else? Just quickly, who do you follow? Who do you follow? As you think about who influences your life in Christ, who do you follow? Who are the ones you look up to? Who are the ones you listen to? Paul's word to Titus here will tell us who we should be listening to. Hebrews 13. Remember your leaders, the writer says, who spoke the word of God to you. Notice the connection, leader, word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Who are your leaders? Know the word so you can pick the fake. Don't allow yourself to be misled. I've been around for long enough, in Christian leadership for long enough, to see churches horribly misled, churches divided by false teaching and immorality. Know the word yourself so you can pick the fake. And for the leaders amongst you, if you are going to lead, do it well. I want to leave you with these words, not from Titus, but from Peter. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and witness of Christ's suffering who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds to God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Let's pray. Father, this is your church. These are your people. Father, you raise up amongst us people who lead us. Father, we pray for each and every one of them for the staff, for the youth group leaders, the growth group leaders, the leadership team members, those who lead in formal and informal ways, those who serve in kids' church. Father, we ask that you would equip them 
by your spirit with everything they need. Take the word of truth and transform their lives. Let their lives and their doctrine both speak of your grace to us in Christ. And Father, as we think about Trinity Hills in the years to come, we pray that you would continue to show yourself faithful by granting leadership that will lead through the preaching and teaching of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.